Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. And today, joining us on the other side of the mic is our guest, Camilla Russo, founder of crypto media platform Defiant and author of The Infinite Machine, a book about the creation of Ethereum, which is currently being adapted into a film by Ridley Scott's production company. Before we dive in, I would like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. It's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, and Polygon 2. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more. This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based layer one blockchain with secure, decentralized access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare's native interoperability protocols provide developers with a variety of high-integrity price and event data, including detailed transaction proofs from other chains and information from Web2 APIs. Build better and connect everything at flare.network. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblock.co slash terms dash service. Once again, I want to thank our guest, Camilla Russo, a longtime fan of Woody Harrelson. <laughs> I just learned who he is, but (laughs) (laughs) long time, 15 minutes ago. (laughs) (laughs) Camilla, thanks for coming on the show. I guess before we kind of dig into the work you're doing, you obviously, I think since 2014 have been, or maybe 2013, have been covering crypto and Ethereum. And obviously the world of decentralized finance is the bread and butter of what you guys are working on over at Defiant. Maybe we can start with some of the things you're watching, some of the trends you're keen to see unfold in 2023 before we venture into some other topics. Yeah, so let's see. The trends I'm watching, excited to see this year is, I mean, biggest theme is what comes out of this bear market. You know, I think in DeFi, the most important kind of foundational primitives were built in the 2018, 2019 bear market. Uh, That's when we saw kind of collateralized lending, DEXs being built. And in the bull market, it just seemed like there wasn't so much innovation happening. It was like everyone copying each other and making marginal improvements on what had already been built. And I think that happens in bull markets because it's just easier to make money and to do well without uh, having just like huge breakthrough innovations. But that's not the case in bear markets. So I'm excited to see what kind of big breakthroughs come from this cycle. And I think one thing that's that's been just like, I think, bubbling to the surface is a real world asset protocols. Uh, you know, these platforms that are enabling loans backed by things other than collateral with crypto. Uh, Mm. So, you know, things like Centrifuge, Maple Finance and others, Uh, it's a tough problem to solve because, you know, you're backing loans with things that are not on chain. So that's a big challenge to solve. But I think it 
that pocket in DeFi has a lot of potential to just, you know, open up the space to uh, a broader audience. So looking forward to that. And I've been looking forward to seeing more development in uh, decentralized identity for a while. And it's just been hard to see that take off. Like, I, I think there has been a lot of thought on how to make that work. And again, like the challenge is getting something like a credit score, like information that's off chain to kind of quantify an individual's credit worthiness on chain. That's kind of the tough problem to solve. But I think that will be really necessary for, for DeFi to become mainstream for people to have their own kind of on-chain identity. So those are two things that I, I'm hoping we'll see more developments in this bear market. Do you remember back in like 2017, I think it was, or 2018, when Vitalik said that he didn't think that the crypto market deserved, at the time, I think it was a $500 billion market cap. Yep. Now we've gone through a few more cycles since then. Are you disappointed in... The state of the crypto market right now, there's a lot of anxiety out there, especially coming out of 2022. How would you sort of describe where you think we're at and whether it is in line with your expectations of maybe what you expected, you know, going back a few years ago? That's a good question. Um, okay, so back in 2017-18, I think Vitalik said, have we earned it? <laughs> and, you know, his thought was that we hadn't. I think right now crypto is in such a different place. Back then, it was all just like speculation on these, you know, different cryptocurrencies and ICO tokens, like a lot of promises and nothing, not a lot to back those promises. I think we're in a much stronger place now. Like you do have actual use cases beyond buying and selling tokens. A lot of those use cases are still based on speculation, you know, like, like I mentioned before, DEXs, lending, I think are kind of the biggest use cases beyond just like trading. But I think what's been disappointing is how overly reliant people in the industry are on, on centralized solutions. And I think that's been, it's become clear how risky that is with you know, obviously FTX and, and Celsius and, you know, all of the issues uh, that CFI has had in the past few months. I think, you know, what's happened is that the way that crypto has evolved is we've been using the same kind of infrastructure, the same rails as traditional finance, and we're just like sticking digital assets in kind of the same house mm. for crypto to really achieve this kind of alternative financial system dream it'll have to update the house too you know it will have to use actual crypto rails and you know self-custody and you know smart contracts based platforms and so on so yeah i think we've made a lot of progress but the space needs to take kind of this bigger step Still. That kind of leads us back into maybe the origin story, right? If we can maybe unpack the book a bit. When you think about what Vitalik set out to do back, you know, what is it now, six years ago, 
how much does it align with where we're at today? And, and what was that original vision as you outlined in the infinite machine? So it's funny, if you look at the Ethereum white paper, a lot of the use cases that Vitalik outlines there have already been done, like one by one. If you look at them, it's like prediction markets, uh, DEXs, collectibles, stable coins, lending, all these things, like they've already been developed. So you could argue that Ethereum has achieved a lot of what Vitalik set out to do, at least the use cases that he envisioned in the white paper. So I thought that's really interesting. The bigger dream is this world computer, right? Like that's what Vitalik called Ethereum early on. And what kind of world computer means is really Web3. It's mm. kind of this underlying platform or infrastructure for the internet as a whole, including the financial system, including all the applications that we use. And for Ethereum to be this infrastructure piece that allows for, you know, a more decentralized web. That obviously hasn't been, we're nowhere near that dream. So, you know, on the use case front, sure, like Ethereum has achieved a lot of them, but on the kind of world computer front, there's still a lot of work to do. And it has to do with, you know, the limitations with scaling is the biggest one probably, but also just like UX issues as well. So can you explain like how you discovered crypto and why you saw the need to tell this specific story? Sure. Okay. So those are like two separate answers. So how I discovered crypto was back in 2013. Before founding The Defiant, I was a reporter at Bloomberg News. I was there for eight years. I spent four years as the lead markets reporter in Argentina, in Buenos Aires. And so it was in Buenos Aires that I wrote my first story on Bitcoin. And at the time, 2013, there was another kind of crypto bull run. Bitcoin hit 100 for the first time and then 1,000 for the first time. And Argentina, you know, having all its issues with inflation and currency controls, it always, you know, had a, a really strong Bitcoin and crypto community. So I picked up on that. An Argentine colleague actually from another office told me to look into, you know, hey, like there's this group of like Bitcoiners that is really growing in Argentina. So I took a look and researching for this story, I became really excited about crypto. I was like, wow, like there's this currency that doesn't rely on central banks and financial institutions. It sounds really revolutionary. And I was earning my own salary in Argentine pesos. Um, so, you know, I was hurting from inflation and currency controls myself. Mm -hmm. So seeing that, you know, I could just like freely have Bitcoin without anyone telling me no, that just kind of blew my mind. So I was interested in crypto ever since, but I really started covering it daily in 2017 in New York. And at the time, you know, I just like dove right into crypto. I took the opportunity to become one of the first journalists in mainstream financial media to cover the space daily. And at the end of 2017, I'm sure you remember, it was like, what the hell just happened? Like, <laughs> it was just such a crazy time. And as a writer or like as a journalist, I was always on, a, on the lookout for a book idea. Like mm -hmm. it had always been my dream. 
to write a book. So end of 2017, I thought, you know, this is crazy, this mm -hmm. crypto space. I just witnessed something. It's probably going to go down in history, this boom. Um, so there has to be a story here. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, and then I, I just looked at, you know, what the biggest story was. And I thought, you know, so there's Bitcoin, but then there's this new cryptocurrency, Ethereum, that's even more ambitious than Bitcoin, that's kind of really taking the space further. Like Bitcoin is trying to be decentralized money, Ethereum is trying to be decentralized everything. And it had fueled the ICO boom. Like it was on Ethereum, but all these ICOs were you know, being issued. So I thought, okay, nobody has told this story on Ethereum. So it's just a perfect book idea. So that's where that came from. What were some of the, you know, major surprises that you came across in reporting out that story? Well, coming into the Ethereum story, at the time, there was like really nowhere you could read or see what the foundation had been like. So first surprise is I had no idea that there was so much drama with the founding team. Mm. Charles Hoskinson was one of the first people I interviewed for the book. And then also Amir Tetrit. And they happened to be the two co-founders that were kicked out or left uh, the earlier group. And so that was really surprising, like the fallout with the founding team, all the drama that happened there, the tension with those who wanted the nonprofit foundation versus a for-profit company, all of that, I had no idea going into kind of uh, researching the book. And it was, you know, this tension was really at odds with the image that Ethereum had, which is like these like rainbows and unicorns and like all happy family mm -hmm. kind of vibe uh, that you found that hackathons and conferences. So that was that was really surprising. What was at the root of the drama? I think like a few things. Like one is eight co-founders is a lot, you know? Yeah. Like <laughs> you hear of startups having issues with just two co-founders and there's like always fights and, you know, lots of stories with fallouts and imagine eight really big egos competing for, you know, attention and their roles and, and so on. So that was a big part of it. Um, and I think it was, they had different visions on what they wanted Ethereum to be. What were the competing visions there? Yeah. So like Vitalik, Mihai Alisi and, and others, they wanted Ethereum to be an open source free protocol and they would run a foundation to um, encourage kind of building on top of this open source protocol. And then there was the like the for-profit uh, vision. And, you know, Charles was kind of the an advocate for that. Amir Tetrit as well. Joe Lubin was, he kind of leaned for the for-profit, but then ended up supporting the, the non-profit idea. But th that was kind and this of the, is for the, the Ethereum foundation specifically, right? Yeah, it was. Are we building a foundation to encourage building on top of this open source platform, or are we building a company, you know, a for-profit company that's going to make tons of apps on top of this protocol? Kind of like what consensus became. So those were the two visions. 
in the end, Vitalik was asked to make the call. It, it was like just like a very contentious uh, moment that became known as the Red Wedding moment. Mm -hmm. uh, like the eight co-founders and other people working on Ethereum met at uh, the house that they shared in Sug in Switzerland. They sat around the table. Vitalik said, I know there's a lot of tension. Let's air our grievances. Everyone just like exploded with uh, their complaints and you know what they thought the future of Ethereum should look like. And some people wanted Charles to leave. So at the end of that, Vitalik had to make the call and he decided that Ethereum would be a, a nonprofit foundation. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the character of Vitalik in the book and then obviously in the uh, upcoming film. You know, obviously he's got an insane intellect, but as a person, at least my impression, but maybe yours is different in reporting out the book, he's a bit demure, you know, very, um, seems sort of maybe easygoing isn't the right word, but but not aggressive, right? So how does that type of personality kind of galvanize an entire community of tens of thousands around him in addition to sort of having power coalesce around him? Yeah, you asked kind of what surprised me, and that's one of the things that surprised me too, just the character of Vitalik, because he was so young too at the time. Like he was only He was 20? 19? Yeah. He was 19. He, yes, has this very shy personality. He, you know, it's just like very awkward in social uh, situations, very much an introvert. And so, yeah, to be leading this group of, you know, co-founders, but also this big community and making these really big decisions like on the direction of, of Ethereum. Yeah, it, it's a lot for any teenager. And I think that the reason why he just like inspires and is just like this natural uh, leader is because of his intellect. Yeah, like that, his ideas, and because you get the sense that they come from a very genuine place. So because of Vitalik's actions, you don't see him having any agenda other than, okay, what's best for Ethereum? And I think that draws people in, you know? It's like, okay, there's this genius that created this completely new blockchain from scratch, and everything he does is thinking about what's best for this platform. So you don't get the sense that he's going to, you know, that he's doing anything for like even his own self-interest. So that means that people just like trust him with leading this because he's just going to do what's best for everyone. Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. And it's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, and Polygon too. Shield your funds and use them privately on your favorite DeFi apps. Railgun's cutting-edge zero-knowledge system encrypts your data from public view. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more. 
This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based layer one blockchain with secure access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare's state connector acquires detailed transaction data from blockchains and information from Web2 APIs in a decentralized way, so it can be used securely, scalably, and trustlessly in applications running on the network. Paired with the Flare Time Series Oracle for decentralized price and time series data, Flare delivers a developer focused blockchain with secure native access to more off-chain data than ever before. Build better and connect everything at flare.network. Finally, we want to thank leading VPN provider NordVPN. You know, my grandmother always used to say, show me a man's calendar and his checkbook and I'll tell you everything I need to know about him. That's why I believe it's vital to take control of my online financial activity with NordVPN to protect my privacy. You know, I don't want a browser or some protocol or decentralized app being able to tell where I live and track my financial transactions. We've spoken with the team and your crypto security is their top priority. You can grab your exclusive NordVPN deal now by going to nordvpn.com slash the scoop to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan, plus four additional months for free. It's easy to set up and Nord even gives you a 30-day money-back guarantee. Check out the link in the description for more details. What are some of your favorite memories in reporting out this book and speaking with different members of the Ethereum community in terms of the maybe feel-good highlights? What are some that come to mind? I had the best time reporting this book. Um, I traveled a lot. Like I tried to do a lot of the interviews in person. So I traveled to Colorado uh, to interview Charles. I interviewed Gavin Wood in Berlin. I interviewed Vitalik twice the second time in Waterloo in Canada. So I think like those really long conversations with Vitalik, with Gavin, with the co-founders of Ethereum, I mean, just like spending time with them, definitely the highlights. And then just like, I really tried to immerse myself in the Ethereum community. So like going to all these hackathons, seeing how like kids were just like, spending the entire weekend and like hiking through the night and the excitement that they felt in kind of building and hacking away. Yeah, that, that really stuck with me. Just like that, uh, that color the around tenacity. the founders. And which one do you think has the most difficult personality? Um, okay, so, <laughs> no, you know what? Like Charles actually... He was super nice, like super open, like interviewing him. I asked him like, you know, tough questions like, hey, like about people saying that he said he was Satoshi. That was like a very awkward <laughs> uh, thing to ask. Like, are you really saying you're Satoshi? <laughs> um, and he was fine with those questions. But Joe Lubin was actually, for me, the hardest interview. He was just like very guarded. He had, you know, press people around him and he didn't like to talk about his personal life very much. Mm. Um, so he was just like, you know, we're talking about Ethereum. Let's stick to Ethereum. But obviously I wanted to get his own story. But yeah, he wasn't really keen on, on sharing that much. So I had to like really push for that and, and then like do a second interview. And so, yeah, I think he was a more private 
person than, than the other founder. So that was, yeah, that was the hardest interview for sure. You know, he was Mike Novogratz's college roommate, I think. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He just like did not want to open up about any of that. <laughs> so it was a shame. Like the opposite of Mike. Yeah. Who will say, tell you anything, including I think there was the recent Bloomberg headline that he's keen to punch Sam in the face or something to that. Oh, respect. I miss that. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny. So tell us the story of how your book got picked up by Ridley Scott's production company. What is that process like? Yeah, it was pretty wild. So I started getting emails from production companies, you know, reaching out, wanting to buy the rights of my book. And I was in conversations with, with a couple of them. And there was this Spain-based production company called Versus Entertainment. And, you know, they were on the smaller side. Uh, they were, you know, based in Spain, not in Hollywood. But they were definitely kind of the most excited about the book, like they had read it multiple times. Like one of the partners was had a crypto hedge fund, so you know he's been in this space for a long time and was really knowledgeable. And so discussing with my agent, he said ninety nine percent of the time authors will sell their rights and the movie never gets made because yeah. production companies just like buy these rights, you know, just in case, but then never end up following through. So I thought. If I went with verses, then because of how excited they were about the book, then I would increase my improve my chances of actually seeing the movie get made. So I decided to go with them, but I told them, okay, like I'll go with you, but we're not making some, you know, artsy European film. Like we're making a like a big production. Like it has to be like a global movie, like for the mainstream, because that's how I wrote my book. Like I wrote my book so that anyone would be able to pick it up outside of people in crypto. And so they promised me that, that it would be like a, a big production. And so the producer at Versus started going to Hollywood to try to find a co-producer based in the US to make the movie. And so he, you know, he pitched two different production companies and yeah, one day he called and was like, you need to be sitting down for this and told me that Ridley Scott was interested in co-producing the movie. So it's really, you know, partnering with people who are equally excited about the movie as I am and who, you know, really wanted to see it become what it can become. And yeah, I mean still very early on. So I'm still, you know, see to believe that it actually gets made, right? But yeah, so far, so good. We have the right people on board. So in terms of like the process, like what do you, you know, have to do as, you know, now selling the rights to it? What does that look like? What's on your plate in this process? So right now, not much, to be honest. Like I, um, I don't have like a very active role in how the movie actually gets made. As executive producer, I have kind of a, an informal say on the script and the cast, but it's not really my role to make the movie. Like that's not, I have no idea. <laughs> I would have no idea how to do that. Um, you know, what I was more involved in was the um, NFT project. 
So as executive producer, I can have a bigger say on how the movie gets funded. And so I thought, you know, it'd be cool to fund part of it uh, or as much as we can of it with NFTs. So I proposed this NFT project for the Infinite Machine and kind of led that uh, last year. And yeah, it was it was a great experience. Um, there are NFTs that are meant to be kind of a backstage pass to production. So these NFTs have like Easter eggs uh, attached to them that some of them give you the right to be an extra in the movie, to visit one of the shootings, to attend the premiere and other things like that, to appear in the credits and the art. It's like a collage made from 36 artists from emerging countries come and, and make different versions of the Ethereum logo. And then we combine those to make these like Ethereum mosaics. So I think it's a really uh, beautiful project. And I was like a lot more involved in leading that. But right now I'm basically just waiting to see the script. So very nervous uh, to kind of unexcited, but also nervous <laughs> to see how, how that turns out. What do you think some of the pivotal scenes will be or would you like to see on screen? Yeah. So, I mean, what I mentioned before, this kind of red wedding mm-hmm. um, scene will be a big one. I think the um, early in the Ethereum story, most of the founders get together in Miami for a, a Bitcoin conference in, when was it? 2014, I think. Yeah when Vitalik announced Ethereum to the world. And this was the only time that all of the founders except Mihai, who couldn't get a visa to travel to the US and had to stay in Romania. But most of the founders were together for the only time in Ethereum history. Mm. So the Miami house and then the DAO. What happened to Miami house? It was just, you know, very early in the Ethereum story. Vitalik had just written the white paper he had emailed it to like his, you know, trusted group of friends and people he respected. And then Anthony Diorio mm-hmm. organized a group and rented this mansion in Miami mm-hmm. for everyone to come and meet each other. And so that's when Vitalik announced Ethereum at this conference. And, you know, he got a lot of attention. It was, you know, Ethereum was being called the next Bitcoin. So everyone kind of flocked to the house and like was partying there. And Gavin Wood was kind of sitting at the kitchen table coding the first version of the Ethereum EVM. So that's when that got built in that house. So it was like, yeah, a very important uh, moment. Aside from, and then I guess the DAO hack. Yeah, and the DAO hack. So how do you think that scene will like unfurl? The the DAO hack? Yeah. It's so hard uh, because a lot of it happens kind of in the internet, like in code, Mm -hmm. in people's computers. So um, like to write about that in the book, I kind of had this Star Wars image of like, you know, the hacker getting on a ship and and raiding Mm -hmm. the mother DAO and like, you know, all this stuff. And that's maybe easier to do in a book. I don't know how that will play in a movie. Um, but, you know, I imagine just like, you know, the conversations that the Robin Hood group, you know, this group of white hat hackers who were hacking the hacker, the, the conversations they were having, kind of the how nerve wracking it was to have Ethereum on the line while this was happening. 
I don't know. Maybe they, they will kind of use some kind of animation, but I don't know if that will look like really tacky. We'll see. I'm, I'm very curious. I think it, it'll be hard to pull off, to be honest. <laughs> some sort of like Star Wars death ship type of situation. Yeah, but I don't know how, you know, it's easier to write that scene out than to make it when it's not like a sci-fi film, per se. So what does that scene look like in the book? I got like a lot of the um, emails and, and chats and kind of conversations that the Robin Hood group was having from them. Like Alex Van de Sand, Absa, was a huge help there in kind of getting me those conversations. So I relied a lot on that, on kind of what this group was, was saying. I painted this image, you know, of like the good guys battling with the bad hackers in, in this galaxy. Mm. That's how I, I try to make it more interesting than just like talking about the code <laughs> that was being hacked. Are there any lessons you think that should come out of reading this aside from like the underpinning storyline and, you know, history? Are there any lessons readers should take away from it? Or did you intend for them to take away from it? I think, you know, the obvious kind of big takeaway that I hoped people would get from the book it's just this idea that there is uh, an alternative that's being built, an alternative financial system and an alternative internet that has this decentralized underpinning. And that it's not fantasy, you know, it's actually being built, it's working. And so hopefully people who read it will be inspired to at least learn more about it and hopefully kind of experiment and check it out and be curious about what crypto is. This idea that, you know, crypto can be good, can be a, a tool that improves people's lives. A lot of my, my views on crypto come from, like I said, from my experience in Argentina. And I think we sometimes forget that, that, that crypto can be a tool for freedom, you know, mm -hmm. for financial freedom. And, and maybe that's not as evident in the U.S. because, you know, you usually don't have problems with your bank or with your government telling you, oh, you can't do this or you can't do that with your own money. But I think in the majority of the world, that's not the case. Um, and we even saw it in Canada, of all places, you know, happen with kind of the, the, the truckers and, and so on. So it's not so far-fetched that it, it can happen here at some point. So, you know, just getting that idea out there that there's an alternative that's possible and, and that's being built. So that, that's kind of the, the big takeaway with my book. And then, you know, there, there's some kind of smaller uh, lessons on kind of building a startup and, you know, what we've been talking about, big egos and too many founders and having different visions. So I think Vitalik can set a really good example for founders of having just a clear vision and sticking to it and, you know, making whatever hard decisions you need to see it through. That was a big lesson for me, actually. You know, whenever I have to make a big decision, I actually do think of Vitalik kind of firing, um, not firing, but like telling Charles to, to go, uh, Gavin, mm. who was his like partner from the start, Ming Chan as well, like all these like very important people in, in, in the journey who for some reason or another had diverging views from like the original vision in the end. You know, Vitalik stuck to to what he thought was best for Ethereum. So I think that's a good lesson for founders. 
and it's kind of helped inform your decision making there at the Defiant. Yeah. How better of a, how better it of a has. tutor can yeah, you yeah, have? Yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, I you know, to create something big, you need a big vision. And you need to have that as kind of the the guiding star in all decisions. So, you know, whenever there's there's a, a tough call to make, that's kind of what you need to be looking at. Fantastic. Well, maybe since you have witnessed so many, not only have you written out the story of crypto to a large extent, but you've bear witness to many of its cycles. What what advice maybe can we leave some listeners with who are maybe just first tuning into the show for the year 2023 as they navigate and wade through its murky waters? Advice is to to stick around. You know, I, I think this space is insane. Uh, it's so crazy. There's so many ups and downs. Um, but it's worth the bumpy ride in all senses. Like, you know, financially, it's, you know, just look at kind of the numbers, right? Yeah, there's big drawdowns, but the trend continues to be up. So I think, you know, obviously, what I always say is like, don't put more into crypto than you're willing to lose. It's a really risky, volatile investment. So I think it's it's worth sticking around and having at least, you know, some of your savings in crypto. Professionally, there's so many opportunities. You know, this is an industry that's really young. It's just getting built. So there's a lot of opportunities for, you know, companies that are, are getting built, that are hiring, for creating your own DAO or whatever company startup. And just in terms of learning, you know, there it's it's just a really interesting space. You it has, you know, you're learning about tech about finance, about economics, all this stuff, you know, comes into play when you're trying to understand crypto. So intellectually, uh, I think it's also worth uh, sticking around. Yeah, there's quite a bit of multidisciplinary um, edification that goes into falling down that rabbit hole. Yeah, maybe too much. You need to be maybe an expert on everything. Yeah. It can be a little <laughs> overwhelming. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you for joining the show today. You've been a huge inspiration for me. And I'm oh, sure many other you. people in the space. So Camilla Russo, founder of Defiant and author of The Infinite Machine. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it truly was mine. Where can our audience learn more about what you're working on at The Defiant? Where can they follow you on Twitter? Check out The Defiant at thedefiant.io. You can subscribe to our newsletter there. And then on Twitter, you can follow me at Camille Russo. Great. Definitely go check that out. Thanks again for being on the show. Thank you. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.